0: Hello everyone and uh, welcome to this lecture on the concept of colonial drain and uh, its link to global capitalism and migration. There is a lot of debate about the amount of uh, wealth that Britain gained from its empire and also about the impact of the colonial drain on both the colonies and Britain itself. In this lecture, I will present the mechanisms and uh, early theorizations of the colonial drain in India, and uh, I will discuss why the colonial drain uh, needs to be understood as part of the overall development of the capitalist system. I will look at the cases of India and Ireland, because in both uh, countries, processes of colonial extraction caused dispossession and impoverishment, and created a reserve of workers forcing them to emigrate either to other British colonies as in the case of India or to England itself, as in the case of Ireland. And this link between colonialism, new colonialism and the creation of reserve army of workers is in my opinion still relevant today. This is uh, or may seem like a counterintuitive um, argument given that ex colonial empo- powers like the UK, France, or even Italy seem to be closing their borders to prevent immigration. But today I will try and present a different perspective. Okay. So if we look at the history of British colonialism in India, we need to bear in mind that um, until uh, the beginning of the 19th century, if any regions uh, were predominant in the world, they were uh, in Asia and in particular uh, China. So not Europe and Europe used the gold and silver from the Americas, gold and silver that were extracted through the exploitation of indigenous people and enslaved populations in order to buy uh, Asian products. And this process of market extraction, according to Gunther Frank, created new vulnerabilities uh, in the Indian economy, and this help explain the victory of the East Indian Company in Plassey in 1757, when the company conquered Bengal and uh, started the British progressive penetration uh, of the Indian subcontinent and from there, uh, the rest of Asia. As a territorial power, the East Indian Company imposed new relations of landed property, increased taxes to an unprecedented level without reinvesting revenues in public works, especially irrigation, which was essential to Indian agriculture. And this decline of irrigation works throughout Asia led to a real ecological collapse and to the diffusion of drought, famines and epidemics, which caused the deaths of tens of millions of people, according to Mike Davis in late Victorian holocausts. The East Indian Company also had the exclusive monopoly of trade, uh, of uh, commodities like tea, salt, opium, and, and so on. And it used to buy this commodity cheap and uh, sell them high at high prices and in this way accumulated quite a lot of profit. And this kind of mechanism also implied fabricating famines, for example, between 1769 and uh, 1773, the East Indian Company manufactured the Great Bengal Famine by buying up all the rice and refusing to sell it again to the population except at fabulous prices. And in this way, uh, the East Indian Company caused the deaths of up to 10 million people, one third of the population in Bihar and Bengal. The money capital that was accumulated in this way was invested in the industrial development of England. And in the wake of the industrialization process, British manufacturers became more and more efficient, and so they didn't need protective tariffs against more competitive uh, commodities in Asia, for example. And this led to increased attempts to impose free trade policies internationally that favoured the export of industrial goods and capital from England. But this wasn't just an economic process. It also implied uh, colonial power because it was thanks to their colonial power that the British could impose free trade policies on India and force the country to specialize in primary production. And in this way, Britain inundated the subcontinent, which was once uh, the great workshop of cotton manufacturers of the world it inundated it with uh, its industrial commodities. And this was an unprecedented phenomenon in Asia, which had devastating consequences leading to the crisis of village communities, and also causing mass pauperization and transforming, really, India into a reserve of labor that allowed capitalists to push down wages to below subsistence level, levels and also to organise large-scale migration of indentured workers to other British colonies, which were in dire need of workers after uh, the abolition of slavery. And I know this has been discussed in other other lectures for for this project. It's important to bear in mind that these kind of processes provoked a wave of anti-colonial movements throughout Asia. Uh, starting in the 1850s, like for example, the Uprisings uh, in India, the Taiping revolution in uh, China and uh, uh, resistance in Persia. And even if the Taiping uprising was bloodily repressed by the British, one of its results was the rise of nation- nationalism in India and the development of uh, an Indian school of political economy against the empire and Naraji uh, was probably the first who developed the theory of economic drain which he defined as a unilateral transfer of funds from India to England through a series of mechanisms based on trade banking and administrative mechanisms and this uh, basically transfer um, of money was unilateral because India didn't get any equivalent uh, return back. So what uh, both Naraji and other economists like that highlighted is, was that a substantial part of tax revenues uh, wasn't used within India but was used as a reimbursement to the producers for their export uh, surplus uh, with the world. And this export uh, surplus was kept in London. What does it mean exactly? So, when the East Indian Company took control uh, of the subcontinent and established a monopoly over Indian trade, it also began to collect taxes uh, in India and then used a portion of tax revenues to fund the purchase of Indian goods for British use. After India was incorporated into the British Empire, Uh, and the East Indian Company's monopoly broke down, Indian producers were uh, allowed to export their goods directly to other countries, but the gold and silver from international payments wasn't accumulated in India, but in London, and local producers were paid uh, in rupees out of their own tax revenues. This meant that the more the Indian people exported to the world market, the more they had to pay out of their own tax, uh, own taxes for uh, the purchase of their own products. And this uh, really terrible mechanism led to um, a widespread immiseration of the Indian population, including uh, moments of mass uh, starvation that are analyzed by Utsa Patnaik in um, several articles um, and also in her book with uh, Prabhat Patnaik on a theory of imperialism and uh, what they highlight is that uh, Britain returned only part of the capital drained out of India uh, in the form for example of uh, foreign investment and foreign investment on its side was aimed at keeping the Indian economy dependent on the um, British economy. How much money um, did the Indian uh, economy Um, transfer to to Britain in this way. According to Utsapatnaik, Britain drained a total of nearly 45 trillion US dollars from India in the period between 1765 and uh, 1938. And just to give you an idea of how much this is, uh, 45 trillion dollars is 17 times more than the UK total annual GDP today. So when we try to understand how much uh, Britain gained from its empire, we also need to bear in mind that India was only one part of the empire and so we need to multiply this amount uh, considering all the extent the extension of the British Empire. Um, so Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik I'll highlight in their book um, that this colonial drain ha- combined two mechanisms. We had one internal mechanism, which was the extraction of surplus from workers and peasants through rent taxes and monopolies by the colonial state and an external mechanism so the fact that these revenues weren't spent internally but were accumulated abroad now nationalist thinkers like narodji or that focused mainly on the second uh, mechanism of this transfer, so the international transfer of money, but they didn't examine the relationship between the peasants and the landlords. And for Chandra, for example, this lack of analysis of the relationship between the producer, the cultivator and the landlord is perhaps the weakest link in nationalist economic thinking. Now, uh, in their book, the, the Patonites discuss whether Marx was aware of these theorizations, and they conclude that uh, he probably was, there is uh, textual evidence, probably he, know, he knew Naraji uh, himself. But the problem is that even the Patniks repeat a commonly held opinion that uh, in capital, Marx analyzed the self-enclosed national economy and so failed to integrate the colonies into his analysis of uh, global capitalism. Uh, well, in my opinion, this is a mistake because actually, for Marx, uh, the colonies were part of the British economic system, and in order to understand the process of capital accumulation on a global scale, we need to look at the interaction between continuing processes of primitive accumulation and the fact that capital accumulation takes place at the global level and doesn't lead to an equalisation of conditions internationally, but rather increases... uh, international inequalities. And this kind of argument is quite clear if we look at uh, his analysis of Ireland in Capital uh, Volume 1, which was the oldest English colony and Marx um, describes in Capital as an agricultural district of England. And he differentiates uh, the process of colonisation during the period of so-called primitive accumulation when the state played a key role in supporting English and Scottish uh, settlers taking over the land and extracting economic surplus as land rent as well as taxes. And he differentiates then the process of uh, colonization after the industrial revolution, when these kind of mechanisms uh, still persisted, but the most powerful driver of dispossession was the capitalist transformation of agriculture, which forced more and more people out of the countryside. And Ireland is quite an interesting case because, uh, because of geographical proximity and other factors. Irish dispossessed peasants fled the country and migrated to England, where they swelled the ranks of the industrial reserve army of uh, English capital. And in his writings, Marx describes in quite detail how the English ruling classes put workers in competition uh, against each other and instigated anti-Irish racism in order to increase the antagonism between Irish and English workers. And uh, as a consequence of these, English workers were seen by the Irish as complicit in English domination over Ireland. And Marx as well, this kind of uh, antagonism is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. So this is just an example of how, for Marx, processes of imperialist expansion are not external to the condition of the working class in the imperialist uh, centers, But the condition of workers in the colonies and in the core of the system are actually closely interrelated and we can see here actually an analysis of the boomerang effect of imperialism that was theorized by Ahmed Césaire. And uh, it's also interesting to look at his uh, political uh, activity because as a leader of the First International, Marx sought by any means to incite English workers to support the Irish struggle for independence, not just as a humanitarian issue, but actually as the precondition for its own emancipation. And this kind of solidarity for, for Marx was key on the one side to building working-class unity in England, but also to opening a wedge inside the nationalist movement in Ireland, strengthening the international organization of the working class. And it's quite interesting because in private conversations, Marx and Angus criticized Irish nationalists for attempting to conceal English workers' support for Ireland. And according to Angus, this was a calculated policy aimed at maintaining their domination over the Irish peasants. So in my view, we find in Marx a theory of the colonial drain that combines domestic and international class relations and also looks at the link between dispossession, impoverishment, and migration. And the continuing processes of uh, colonial and imperial expansion lead to the uh, creation of a mass of dispossessed workers who represent a relative surplus population. So this means that they are not uh, superfluous to cool, but they are superfluous in relation to the current demand for labor power in production, but they are actually necessary to the accumulation process as such. And the presence of these uh, massive workers who are unemployed or underemployed actually puts pressure on those who are in employment limiting their claims and resistance, and this allows capital to increase the exploitation of the workers who are employed in a vicious circle of super exploitation and unemployment, underemployment, that, in my view, needs to be understood at the global level. If we try to understand uh, or apply this kind of uh, framework today, one could ask, well, How do we explain the fact that uh, ex-colonial powers in Europe are actually funding, giving money uh, to Libyan militias, for example, to create detention centers uh, to prevent uh, immigration from the Mediterranean? And we're actually led to believe that these terrible conditions everybody knows uh, in, in the Libyan detention centres are actually aimed at stopping unnecessary because we need to stop uh, immigrants from reaching Europe as if people on the move were really superfluous and also as if they represented a threat to the working conditions of working classes uh, in, in Europe well this kind of narrative uh obscures the role of western capital and also the role of western states that are presented as reacting to global transformations and not enabling the process of capital accumulation and also the process of reproduction of the global reserve army and in my view this kind of narratives also strengthens uh racialized discourses on surplus population Um, obstructing the common organization of workers and actually allowing the super exploitation of a section of workers in Europe that then generates a general uh, worsening of working conditions. And uh, these kind of mechanisms, in my view, are quite evident if we look at the relationships uh, between the EU and Italy after the 2011 NATO war on Libya. So this war was presented as a humanitarian intervention aimed at supporting the Libyan population that had rebelled against Gaddafi in the wake of the 2011 uprising. But the actual goal of the war was to prevent the radicalization and extension of these uprisings throughout North Africa, get rid of Gaddafi's nationalist policies and impose a much more new colonial agenda in Libya. And this became clear immediately because amidst uh, destruction of uh, Libyan infrastructure, impoverishment, human rights abuses, the New York Times also immediately said that this war had led to a scramble for access to Libya's oil wells on the part of Western corporations and states that in order to be able to extract Libyan resources, empowered local militias, which became increasingly integrated into state institutions, and these state institutions eventually broke down amid an ongoing civil war in the country. So just to give you an example of how this form of predatory neocolonialism operates, um, the multinational oil and gas corporation, ANI, interrupted the payment of reparations for the crimes of Italian colonialism in Libya that had been agreed with the Gaddafi government in 2008. And to ensure the extraction of Libyan energy, any struck deals with local tribes and militias that started to act as security companies of uh, any itself. The problem is that the same militias are also involved in the trafficking of fuel, weapons and human being from Libya and act as the Libyan coast guard. And for the Libyan audit bureau, for example, the smuggling of refined petroleum products between 2014 and 2017 cost the Libyan population around 20 billion US dollars. So this is a huge drain of Libyan resources that helps explain while on the one side, About 10% of the petrol sold in Italy has been imported illegally at almost no cost. While on the other side, since 2014, the Libyan population faces a total lack of uh, public services, an 80% decline in their purchasing power and basically has to pay quite a lot of money to buy its own petrol. So this is just an example of the processes of new colonial drain that are going on in Libya right now, pushing large number of people to leave the country. So one could ask, what is the role of the EU and uh, Italy in all this? Well, it's quite interesting because the naval naval missions of the EU and Italy in the Mediterranean have turned a blind eye on fuel smuggling and have only targeted low-level smugglers, which has facilitated the concentration of smuggling activities that turned into trafficking in in many cases and have made uh, Mediterranean crossing much riskier, turning the Mediterranean into the deadliest um, migration route in the world. If we look at the drop of arrivals uh, from the Mediterranean in August 2017, we see that this drop is not the result of all the money that has been paid by the European Union to support the Libyan Coast Guard and detention centers. It, uh, it has been a result of a secret pacts between Italy's interior minister and the secret services with Libyan tribes, militias and smuggling networks in the west and south of Libya, who decided to stop departures, focusing instead on other smuggling activities and the business of detention and forced labor. It's also a result of the Italian naval mission Mare Sicuro extending itself into Libyan waters in a clearly new colonial fashion and basically taking control and training uh, the Libyan coast guard. So, this kind of processes led to the expansion of an economic system based on forced labor and Just to give you an example of how it works, uh, these militias that control detention centres receive millions of euros uh, from the EU and they also extort money from their detainees. But in addition to this, they also sell the detainees or rent them out, forcing them to work without pay in order to secure their release. And then in many cases, also organise their uh, journey um, across the Mediterranean. Now the thing is that uh, not all immigrants wanted to go to Europe in the first place, but uh, once they are in this situation, they cannot find secure work in Libya and they cannot find a safe transit either to Europe or to their countries of origin. And so this basically, this kind of mechanism traps them within a system that at the same time stops them there and pushes them towards Europe. And it's quite significant in a collective video message that is available online. Detainees of the Osama prison in western Libya says said that basically um, this is a situation in which they say, well, they refuse to deport us. We told them that we want to go we want to go back to Africa so that is basically sub-Saharan Africa, but they refuse to deport us. They don't want us to go to Europe and also they don't want to go back to our countries. They are keeping us here for business because the Libyan economy uh, basically works around the business of detention and forced labor. So When and if immigrants manage to arrive in Italy, Libya continues to play a disciplining role because the conditions that they are leaving behind make conditions in Italy seem an improvement, even if these are quite poor. And uh, in an article, uh, Rossana Chiland, I wrote about this, we interviewed a series of immigrants, uh, African immigrants in Italy, and one uh, an immigrant from Mali, uh, as asylum seeker, told us, well, even if uh, they don't pay me, that's not really a problem. Because I am in Italy, I'm not beaten. Before I was in prison all the time in Nigeria, in Libya. But here I'm not in prison. I eat, I sleep, I sleep well, God willing. I only have my mother. And so basically, he's okay, even if um, he's not being paid uh, for his work. And this is quite a widespread uh, condition. But it's also important to bear in mind that. Many immigrants have also tried to use their new formal freedoms in Italy to improve their situation and this kind of feelings has animated some of the most important immigrant workers struggles in Italy over the last decade, I would say probably some of the most important workers working struggles which led to several strikes, to uprisings against exploitation, uh, institutional racism and uh, the mafia and also several actions including the blockade of a multinational corporation and also led to the first independent organisations of African workers uh, in Italy. And it's quite significant that these struggles were actually animated and inspired by the uprisings in the Middle East. Uh, And for example, during the Nardò strike in 2011, uh, an immigrant, Tarek, said, well, in Tunisia, we autonomously drove away any dictatorship. And laughing, he said, well, in a similar way, we can do things here because this is our right. And another immigrant involved in the strikes said, well. This is no longer the age of slavery, and so we can fight and improve our conditions. So to conclude, in this lecture, I presented the mechanisms of colonial drain in India and Ireland and argued for the need to develop a theory of colonial drain that combines domestic and international class relations. At Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik argued, the end of formal colonialism significantly reduced the possibility for imperialist countries to drain value through the state, but still we can trace similar mechanisms of new colonial drain taking place today. In particular, the 2011 Libya war fueled the predation of Libyan resources by Western companies and also uh, by competing uh, militias. And this kind of uh, situation pushed an increasing number of people to leave the countries. Testimonies of immigrant workers dispelled the myth that the militarization of EU borders aim at stopping immigration from Africa, it rather traps immigrants in Libya and pushes them towards Europe. And this form of new colonial violence, along with the tightening of asylum and immigration legislation, aims at disciplining workers and creating racialized hierarchies that make the common organization more difficult. But we need to remember that still, this is not impossible. In fact, immigrant workers have led the most radical and sustained struggles in Italy in the wake of the global economic crisis. And this demonstrates that migration today, like yesterday, still creates new possibilities for the labor movement and international solidarity. Thank you very much for your attention.